Good afternoon, everyone. I'm just going to let a few people uh, log into today's session. It's uh, done by our, our team at SHC at uh, NMQF, headed by Dr. Laura Lee Hall. Um, no, no real announcement for me, and I know there's a lot of stuff that we need to get through this morning, so I'm just going to turn it over quickly to Dr. Hall to start today's webinar. Thank you, Brandon. I'm going to share my screen, and hopefully everybody can see it. Are you seeing it? You're good. Excellent. I want to start out not just by thanking Brandon, but thanking Ashley Hill, who has really been helping coordinate and put this together today. So thank you so much, Ashley. You're welcome. So let me um, indulge this great honor of mine in introducing our, our discussants and they really need no introduction. And if they wanna sing, that's open to them too. So Dr. Dan is one of our um, experts, champions. He's a distinguished ER physician, assistant professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at GW School of Medicine. Uh, and you see this list of topics and expertise and work that he has done across the board. And he is joined by the inimitable Dr. Thomas, who directs the Center for Health Equity at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. He's really one of the nation's leading scholars when it comes to racial and ethnic health disparities and has worked in a number of fields. And he's received a number of awards as you see on this bullet. Um, and he, uh, we are grateful for his leadership, his um, insights and creativity, and also collaboration uh, with our Hair Wellness Warrior program. So I'm going to give a little setup here for a conversation. I think we could all rightly say that the last few years have been a roller coaster. I remember when COVID began, and the deadly disparities emerged and how there was just this kind of national um, cry of surprise and, and, and you know just really uh, dismay but then folks like Stephen and doc, Dr. Dan they dug in with others and got communities engaged to protect themselves and that really worked. We saw gaps in vaccination actually close due to that community-based efforts. I think that maybe we're currently retreating from those successful strategies. And so that's why I wanted to invite these two brilliant, dedicated, passionate men to talk about where we are in this uh, closing days of Minority Health Month. So, uh, I'll give you some of my sense. I have a lot of fears that you can see here. Uh, you look at the numbers and um, things are not so great. We have seen shorter life expectancy, increased maternal and infant mortality, cancer deaths, vaccination rates, cancer screening rates, diabetes rates and outcomes, HIV AIDS, drug overdoses, a lot of health disparities. And there's a lot of things happening in the policy and system. You know, Medicaid coverage diminishing, the impending end to the national emergency and public health emergency related to COVID, which really provided a lot of resources for communities and health departments and clinics. of health services and policies. Our health systems are really strained in terms of staffing, nursing crises, closing of hospitals in rural America, food insecurity, inadequacy of mental health services, and persistent racism in the healthcare system. So those are my fears. But I also have hope because I know I'm very blessed to know many community health champions and health leaders committed to them 
And these are just a few pictures of those who attended our NMQF summit this past week. Um, so that gives me tremendous hope. I'm gonna stop sharing now and see where you are. Um, so will I ask you to complete this poll? What's the state of minority health? And are you optimistic or pessimistic about health equity? Looks like people, oh, here we go. Some more weighing in. I don't know if others are gonna kind of join in. Yep, here we go. Uh, our, our two discussants I know you'll be able to use this information as you go about your conversation. So I think we see what the trend is here, right? So I think we could end uh, the poll. I'm not sure if I, I have to do something. Here we go. I can't um, seem to get to my slides to share them. Ashley, can you stop sharing? Yes, I, I already stopped. Okay, but some reason my I'm not able to share. Okay. I'm having some technical difficulties. So instead of trying to fight the machine and use up time, I'm going to just talk about, okay, are you seeing my screen? Yes, we are. Okay, so those technical difficulties evaporated. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what I asked Dr. Thomas and Dr. Dan to talk about. What did the COVID pandemic reveal about racial and ethnic health and healthcare disparities? What bright lights can you point to? It seems like most of you all thought we're pretty optimistic. And what threats do you see on the horizon? Um, please add your questions or comments to the Q&A box. We will definitely get that into the um, conversation. Also note that we are going to have a word cloud developed. And we will ask you to put your words in the chat. So I'm just going to end my presentation by thanking you and inviting everyone to become a formal health champion so we can make that bright light shine brighter. So it's over to you guys. That's awesome. Um, Laura Lee, thank you so much. Um, and. Um to all, all who have attended and who are here. And um, please uh, share this with uh, folks. So let's get into the conversation, Dr. Thomas. I mean, we have a big question. We saw that poll, that poll was very interesting. I wanna know your thoughts on that. I, I mean, I, I'm ambivalent about um, you know the future. However, um, there are some things that the pandemic really did bring out. Um, so what's your thoughts? Let's kind of get into that conversation. Well, first of all, Dr. Dan, it's wonderful to be one-on-one uh, -on -one with you. We've been in webinars with hundreds of other people. Here we are together uh, to address this issue. You know, I have called the pandemic a silver lining. And I do that with some caution, because depending on the audience, like we had an audience last night in a webinar where there were people that said, I lost six relatives to COVID. Uh, there's still a lot of grieving going on. And it may not be possible to see the silver lining when it's up that close. So I think we need to acknowledge the the pain and suffering that's still out there as you know the world moves on, uh, that there are still people uh, suffering. 
and that we need to give time uh, for that to um, sink in. It won't be long from now. I think it's next month that, at least here in the United States, there will be the declaration is that the emergency powers are now released. Mm-hmm. And that sends a message that, okay, it's over. But you and I both know it's not over. <laughs> but the That's other right. thing is that COVID, uh, you remember those underlying conditions? Hmm. The diabetes, the hypertension, the you know risk for cancer, all those, they're still there. And minority health and health disparity research was focused on those chronic conditions before the pandemic hit. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Little C, big O right now. Right. And I say that because my big O, my big optimism is these polls behind me. It's more than a background. It's a metaphor for the kind of conversations that have been unleashed during the pandemic in the trusted space of the black barbershops and beauty salons. And, uh, and, and, and Dr. Dan, you and I both know, it doesn't matter how much hair you have, right? No, it's still smooth. Still <laughs> you're smooth. Gonna, you're going to spend some time in the shop. And that, to me, has been the eye-opener uh, to, to have the barbershops and salons. So as we move along in this conversation, uh, I'll share a little bit more about uh, you know that work. But how about you uh, as a physician, uh, the work that you're doing, um, a lot of our clinical partners are also feeling that pain and suffering on the front line. What are you seeing? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I share the same sentiment. It's just that um, people have been exhausted. They've been drained. We acknowledge the losses. I mean, and then from the healthcare worker, the frontliners, I mean, literally people have drained several thousands of healthcare workers. They said half of the healthcare workforce, especially nurses, are actually leaving. Um, And over the next five years, they're saying the doctors are also leaving. And that is true. Many of us in the profession are. So what does that bode for the future? I don't want to be pessimistic, but that's the burnout. That's the mental health. That's the other underlying issues not job satisfaction, and also prioritizing what's important to us. The pandemic magnified all these cracks and made us understand and see, feel, smell, um, and appreciate losses, appreciate loved ones, appreciate time, appreciate personal space, but also start to reflect on who you are and what impact you have on your community and who you have, who's around, who actually cares about you. So there's so many things that people started to grapple with, not even talking about the, even the financial issues, but just that mental health and just your whole well-being. So I think for the future, there's a big challenge, but the question is, how do we pivot? Do we now use the pandemic as a catalyst that catapults us into a better future in addressing disparities and inequity? Or do we actually let it now, when it's magnified, We don't have a solution for it and let all what we've done, all the gains that we've made, because that's the big O, right? That we've gained through the pandemic, the the dedication of time, the engaging the community, the actually finding the trusted resources. I mean, one of the Drake songs is a, you aren't with me shooting in the gym. People asked us that same question. Like, (laughs) oh, why are you coming to us? uh, And now you want to offer the vaccine and you want to offer healthcare and you want to do all these things. We had all these problems before. We don't believe you. You need more people. I mean, so these are all the questions people ask. So what is our job and what is our role and how do we actually build upon all of we have? I think that's what we really need to be tackling. You know, you're making me uh, realize that uh, this might be a good time to get a pulse uh, for the audience. And, and so uh, for those of you listening to Dr. Dan and I, I'm going to ask Dr. Dan, Think about a word right now that best reflects what you're feeling at this moment in the pandemic and type that word into the chat. And for the next 60 seconds, everybody out there, just put as many words as you can think of into the chat. And we have a team behind the scenes that's going to build a word cloud. And Dr. Dan, that'll give us an idea. That'll give us an idea of where people are. Because I agree with you, you don't replace nurses and physicians like the snap of a finger. It's not a light switch. Uh, so the cracks that you were describing are in our healthcare delivery system. And just recently, the National Academy of Sciences had a whole session on 
the reflections of the pandemic. Why did we do worse than other countries that are not as wealthy as we are? Uh, how is it that we, the United States, came up with a vaccine in miracle time, but couldn't get it into the arms of all our people? Uh, those are issues that really uh, anyone who's going back to normal, I'm going to tell you the lesson uh, message from the barbershop. Nobody wants to go back to normal. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> because back to normal for so many black and brown people meant living sicker and dying younger. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm wondering if I could take you, Dr. Dan, into the barbershop right now. Let's take this audience Let's into go. the shop and let them meet the strategy that we use to actually move the needle. I'm going to ask the team behind the scenes while they're putting those words in to, to run that video clip. And uh, here we go. I can do this. Let me. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephen B. Thomas. I'm a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management and director of the Maryland Center for Health Equity at the University of Maryland School of Public Health in College Park. Our center is known for health advocates in reach and research, the HAIR Network. We bring medical and public health professionals into barbershops and salons to train our barbers and stylists to become certified community health workers. The barbershop and salon chair is a sacred space where people share their truths, from motivations for taking the annual flu shot to COVID-19 boosters. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic has made clear that hyper-local strategies really work to reach communities of color, especially our Black and Hispanic neighbors. So what better place to go with flu education and vaccinations than where people already have trust, the barbershop and salon? So we're working together to host pop-up wellness screenings in collaboration with our clinical partners and conduct flu vaccine clinics on site at the shops. Our vaccination clinics don't feel like a traditional hospital or any clinical setting. Everyone is treated with dignity and respect. People arrived hesitant and departed hesitant, but vaccinated. <laughs> our events feel like you're going to a party a family reunion. We have a DJ spinning music, catered food, laughter, all in an atmosphere of love. We are transforming barbershops and salons into trusted information centers based on the belief that when you provide people with the information they need and the wisdom to take action, they will naturally gravitate towards saving their own life and the lives of their loved ones. Now we have a cadre of barbers and stylists from across the nation trained as wellness warriors, saving lives one by one in the chair. <laughs> hey, hey, Dr. Dan, this is how we do it in, in the Zoom. We snap them up. Let's thank those barbers and stylists out there all across the country that got involved in yeah. shots at the shop, yeah. bringing vaccines to the community in settings they already trust. And you know what's so interesting, Dr. Dan? When the medical professionals came to deliver those clinical services, they had fun. It lifted their spirits. It reminded them why they became health professionals. And we're in a situation right now, as you say, the retreat's going on, the dismantling's going on. I think that we have to use these forums right now to say, don't abandon the front lines. Uh, we now have a cadre of extenders of the health system right there in our network barbershops and beauty salons. Yeah, I am. I mean, the impact of just being able to have a place where you you lay down your hair, so to speak, uh, for the hair salons and <laughs> um, for the barbershops, I guess. Um, but it's just a place, it's a community place, right? It's where people just get to be themselves and talk freely. Um, and it's that that um, camaraderie, that sense of family, that sense of, okay, this is where I can vent and express my troubles and frustrations. But this can also be an area where I can get some education. 
some knowledge, um, a navigation of sorts through the system, the convoluted health system, um, and also get some information that may help me make a better decision for me and my family. So I think those things have a great impact. But the question is, again, so how do we sustain this? Or how do we even build upon the wonderful work that you and um, several of our colleagues have done in that field in these health champions, these physician extenders, um, and these community extenders? Um, those are the important things. And how do we continue funding? How do we address those gaps? And when you look at even just the word cloud and, and the response that a lot of people have put in, in the chat, I hear a lot of fear. I hear a lot of frustration, despair, tired, fatigue. I mean, everybody's feeling it. The frontline people are feeling it. Everybody who was on the receiving end is feeling it. So what do we do now? And God forbid another pandemic or another thing. So how do we... Um, reform like Voltron, so to speak, and, and, and build something better. Um, and especially the communities that have been disadvantaged, who now got some attention during those times, but then, okay, it's not over. I mean, yes, in a few weeks, there'll be this guidance that, okay, the pandemic is over, but it's not really over. And then how do we sustain and make it even better and use these moments and these lessons that we've never learned by the way they're re-experienced just just one of my big things they, they never <laughs> learn right never well you know what gives me hope my friend is that uh the barbers and the stylists they're not leaving and i think we have to recognize they're not nonprofits; they're small businesses and let's treat them like we did during warp speed what we, what did we do with the private sector we had public private partnerships they remove the red tape. They 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 release dollars before they even had a product, uh, and so that resulted in a miracle: safe and effective vaccines in miracle time. The fact that we couldn't get it in people's arms—that's the public health side. So think about our basic scientists. Snap them up. Thank you. But if we can't get a vaccine and translate it into a vaccination, Mm. It's an exercise in futility. Correct. And Correct. so in the network uh, with the National Minority Quality Forum uh, is to say this, that all barbershops are not the same. We've created a network where the barbers and stylists in the Champions Program, in the Wellness Warrior Program, are literally being trained to become certified community health workers uh, from their various state uh uh, regulatory agencies. It's a patchwork all over the country. I think we can work on that from this level. Could we have national standards for what it takes to become a certified community health worker uh, and have that uniform in a way that we, right here, can train the nation uh, in the hyper-local, culturally tailored strategies that we found so successful? I think that's the other lesson, Dr. Dan. Hyper-local matters. So you need a place to plant your flag. And I think the barbershops and beauty salons that have survived the pandemic, a lot of small businesses are out of business. They didn't survive the pandemic. Any shop that has survived the pandemic means they have a loyal client base. We should support them. And uh, the uh, certified community health worker is just one training that they're eligible for. They can also become trained in mental health first aid and trained in lifestyle coaching. They want to know their lane and their limits. And at what point do they say, you know what? You need to talk to a physician. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna, and Dr. Dan's gonna be here on Saturday. <laughs> I want you to help me. How do we get our, our medical professionals, given the busy schedules they're on, to carve out time to actually come into the community? The pop-up clinics worked, but now the pop-up clinics are being dismantled. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts about how we do that to make sure that the barbers and stylists still have access to the kind of medical expertise that our communities need? I think it's uh, programs like yours um, and, and, and the work of NMQF, the work of the Association of Immunization Managers, CDC. I mean, all the public-private partnership and the, the sponsors 
all that has to come together. Um, and I think they have to support the medical um, community to be able to um, stay consistent at doing that. Remember, there's that burnout already. So people are kind of like, oh, we're done with this. I don't want to <laughs> engage. Because what it is, is they're frustrated. They've seen this movie before, right? You yeah. saw H1N1, you had a Ebola. And you, you see the responses. It's like, okay, aren't there people that uh, prepared and planned and gave some guidance on these things? How do we engage those folks? And where does the government put their money and funding? Where do the policymakers stand on these things? Where do our elected officials stand on these issues? Do they actually take it serious so that they can support those communities? They're people who are going to volunteer. Healthcare workers love to help people. That's what they're passionate. And as you mentioned, they find that reason again. Oh, this is why I went into healthcare. This is why I want to be a part of this. And it's they people want to take care of that community because it's we all build together, right? I go to the store, I see you across the street, you're also my neighbor, those types of things. But due to the fragility and increased violence and frustrations, mental health issues, I mean, people aren't even trying to associate. So we have to bridge those things. And to your point about the healthcare workers, I think institutions need to be involved um, to actually basically support their healthcare workers going into the communities. I think access, safety, a funding, all those things have to be a part of that. Um, but it is a big challenge because people are leaving. They're done. Like, it really is a wrap. They're, they're really done. And, and that doesn't look good for the future. And I think we keep sweeping it under the rug. So if we're having a place where we're having healthcare workers leave, how do we help our community um, workers and our barbershops, our salons, our police, firefighters, all local community people, how do we train them in some basic skills and some knowledge to make sure they're encouraged and they might be the ones that actually encourage the healthcare workers like, oh, they're taking this challenge on. We, we're we willing to do this. I mean, you gotta flip it around, whichever way we're gonna um, figure it out, but we have to, and it's, it's a big challenge, I, I, I think. I, I wonder if I could jump in here. I just wanted to share with you and the group that's listening that, from our work with DRIVE in hundreds of clinics, most clinics don't really know how to engage with the community from our surveying. Um, and the ones who do are led by visionary committed people to that idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, you know, I would call out a place like Elmhurst or Cook County. Um, our churches too are part of this community yes. effort. Um, so, you know who else does this really well are the free and charitable clinics. They, by definition, are, and, and again, we have a study coming out showing that they know how to engage with the community. Some of our chain pharmacies actually are really engaging with the community, but there are many, many, many healthcare providers who really don't know how to do this. Well, you know, we have a place for them to get the necessary training uh, right here. Uh, this, in, uh, Dr. Dan, truly is a breakthrough in terms of Zoom as an opportunity uh, to bring the voices of the people to the forefront. And even the voices of this audience, uh, there's over 100 people uh, listening to us right now. Let's see what they put in the word cloud and what mm -hmm. guidance and insight that that gives us. Mm -hmm. So I'll ask the crew behind the scenes to... Uh, put up the word cloud and uh, now Dr. Dan, we have, you know, I want the audience to know that the larger the word, the more people who said that word. And then you look at all the smaller words around the side. What do you see, Dr. Dan? I see concerned. I see <laughs> tired. Yeah. I see exhausted, <laughs> overwhelmed, frustrated, worried. At least those are the highlights, at least that stand out to me. And then, you know, around the edge, moral courage, uh, drowning, trepidation, unbiased, cautiously optimistic, mm. uh, integrity, wipeout. Uh, I think they're telling us the challenge that we need to address. And um, one of the things I've seen is that um, bringing people together where they can actually see the results of their work uh, 
is rewarding. It, it can fill them back up again. They have a, there's an empathy uh, deficit. Um, there's, there's inspired there. Uh, there's some panic, underlying risk. We need to really work these words into innovative strategies to address the needs of our community. And um, the extent to which we have now identified a, an army of people um, during the height of the pandemic, uh, there were gatherings, I call it the solution space. They had the pharmacists, they had the business people, they had the medical societies, they had the public health, all those organizations, nonprofits, the churches. They would be in a Zoom all together trying to figure out how do we get the vaccine to our communities? How do we address the mis- and disinformation? How do we address the politicalization of public health mitigation measures like wearing a mask? We came together across all of our differences to find common solutions, Dr. Dan. How do we get back there? Yeah, um, that was a great time um, and also a trying time. Yeah, and I use great time as it's a moment in time. I don't remember in, in history, um, and I'm young. Um, <laughs> so um, where, you know, everybody was on the same page. Yeah. Walking, working in unison, walking lockstep, all hands on deck, trying to solve a problem for the community. We did many of those calls together. And MQF hosted several of those many different organizations. Um, how do we get there? Some um, one of the sayings of one of my colleagues, and we always said this when I um, served um, uh, with HHS, it was really day-to-day -day preparedness begets disaster preparedness. So it's the things we do day-to-day. -day. Um, I go to the community store. I, I see my neighbor. I say hi. Um, they need some change or they need or their child just fell and I picked them up. Um, you know, just the, the things that we do for each other. And there's commerce, there's exchange of ideas. Oh, hey, what happened to your neighbor over there? That sense of community is definitely fragile nowadays. Let's not uh, let's not deceive ourselves. Um, it's hard to do. And I think it's these type of uh, discussions, but also events around it. You know, people like to socialize. We're social animals, right? We were all locked up for a while and, and now we got that time to mix and mingle again. So I think the social type of events are important. Um, and even, you know, we people got zoomed out too, you know, like, okay, I want to see you in person. What do you look like? What do you sound like? Let's just interact. I want to hug. Right. I just need some love. I mean, so there are many different things. So I think those things need to be part of the solution where we're engaging folks, but also coming uh, to their events and doing the day-to-day -day things, the regular basic things. Hey, I need your blood checked. I need your blood pressure checked. I need you to help me. How do I navigate the system when I come to the ER? Dan, what, what am I supposed to say? And what if I meet resistance? How do I escalate? How do I navigate the system? Who do I need to call? What things should I wor worry about? How do I not have to come to your emergency department? How about that? I get vaccines. I go get my um, uh, discussion and go see my doctor. I take my uh, regular medicine. I diet and exercise. I have access to fresh fruits and foods. I have access to information that I didn't know about that they taught me at the salon, at the barbershop, at church. I mean, meeting people where they are, we talked about all of that, but also day to day, what are we doing? Um, and those things build upon the system. And then the healthcare system has to face its own issue yes. with having a system that actually can do these things. Laboratories, uh, a timeliness of information, breaking information down in digestible, understandable um, uh, ways for people. So it's not all this whole cap and lies that people get in all these uh, disinformation, right? So we need to be savvy on those things. And then we can get into the whole funding and where the government stands. What are they supposed to be doing? Who's accountable? Politicization of all the healthcare policies. Do you see what's going on with just um, abortion and actually access to women's health and women's rights? That's yes. just an issue. Gun violence. We see this all the time. America hasn't gotten it through their head that they need to actually take their head out of wherever and figure out that gun violence is a problem. 
Like these are the things that we need to call out and that are important um, in addition to other things, childhood vaccination. I mean, there's so many different things. Uh, don't get me started, but I'll, uh, I'll pipe down and let's see what's in the chat and what people are talking about. Well, you know, while you're looking there in the chat, let me just say this. I cannot think of a better place for those conversations to be happening than in the barbershops and salons. In fact, in the Black community and the Hispanic community, those are places where social norms are set. If we're not there, then we allow them to simply marinate in the misinformation swirling around. And now we have a place to help guide people. Uh, here's the message that we heard last night from the wellness warriors who put on their very first workshop. And Laura Lee, let's make sure we send a, a, we'll send a message to everyone who registered here. So you can literally hear the wellness warriors tell their story. Uh, and, 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 and what they described uh, was the fact that they are literally, when they started out trying to persuade people to change their hesitancy, didn't work, okay? Because their minds were made up. Over time, as the barbers and stylists, who were also on the hell no wall, got more information, made informed decisions, got vaccinated, they became role models for their clients. And now, wow, last night, as one of our Atlanta warriors said, it started out with five people coming in. And before it was all done, over the several months, 1,500 vaccinations in a barbershop uh, uh, in Atlanta, uh, Andre uh, Russell's shop, amazing. And now, uh, Dr. Dan, they gave us an example. They said, you medical professionals have all this jargon. Dynamite Brown said, I like basketball. We are your team. We're in the playoffs. The stadium is now full. Mm. The people are here. Mm -hmm. But we don't have a ball. Mm. You health professionals are the ball. Mm. Come back to the hyper-local community. We're ready for you. And I think that the window for that readiness is not going to stay open forever. We, right. we were able to overcome the distrust and build trust. But Dr. Dan, now we have to be trustworthy. Mm -hmm. They say, hey, Dr. T, are they just going to give us the jab and leave us with cancer? Give us the jab and leave us with diabetes? I think that that's very insightful. And we need to lift up their voice and start agitating on behalf of making sure that the hyperlocal strategies stay in place. And ask our pharmaceutical friends to step up to the plate as well. These are small businesses. And, and to tell our friends in policy, there's something about warp speed uh, that may be advantageous for it. Maybe we'll call ours quantum speed <laughs> because <laughs> we definitely need a new way of, an, of, of, having our, of having what worked during the pandemic be sustained. Why would you abandon what we know worked? And that's going to take us to, to agitate and, and help our barbers and stylists be advocates for hyperlocal community engagement. And enter the policymakers and organizations such as NMQF and others um, just basically advocating um, and banging down the walls. Um, of many of us who are involved in different discussions, um, again, agitating, as you said, um, writing about it, talking about it, doing things about it. Um, and I think providing visibility, um, evidence. Hey, this is what happens when you adopt a hyperlocal strategy. This is the impact of the public-private partnership, um, and I think those are things that are important. And I think also, you know, the um, our government also believes in understanding fiscal um, things. So anything that has to do with money, they kind of raise their eyebrows to that. So if you can show <laughs> that there's money saved in prevention. Um, as opposed to waiting till the last minute and doing things. I mean, we spent over what, $5 trillion on the pandemic? And what were the outcomes? But there were so many lives still lost. Could those lives have been saved? Over 60% of the lives lost, if not 70, could have been saved. That's a huge impact. Huge. Um, so th these are things that we really have to um, 
consider and start um, not only just discussing, but what are the changes? How do we um, change the healthcare system? In my personal opinion, and by the way, this is not any reflection on anybody, but my personal opinion, because I have to say that, I think the whole healthcare system needs to be thrown away, revamped, and we need a new healthcare system. That's just my perspective. It's no. garbage. It's, it's just not doing what it's supposed to do. So, so to answer the theme of this webinar, the state of minority health, I would say concerned. The state of minority health is concerned, even what we call it. Uh, Dr. Dan, I can't remember a time when elected officials would restrict our ability to talk about our own black history. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because the only way to get to through uh, get to trust we got to walk through truth right. and some of that truth is painful and here's another silver lining of the pandemic because the anti-vaxxers were using the history of research abuse in our in our black community as oh black people aren't getting vaccinated because of the syphilis study so let me tell this audience that the grandchildren, the survivors of that mm -hmm. infamous study, and here's the official name, the U.S. Public Health Service study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. That's the official title. Don't be afraid to use the official title. Don't use the shorthand. Use the official title. They came on and did a ad council series. Mm -hmm. These are the children. Don't use our loved ones suffering as your excuse not to get vaccinated. These are folks living in Macon County, Alabama, uh, in Tuskegee, Alabama, and they got vaccinated, Dr. Dan. Yeah. They yeah. got vaccinated. That, that is, that's a sea change. And we need to make sure that our medical professionals begin spreading that message into the curriculums and not use it as an excuse for not engaging our communities. We have demonstrated we can build trust. Now we need to be trustworthy. No, totally. Uh, Henrietta Lacks' daughter, I believe uh, we did a session with NMQF. Myself, her, and some others were on that call. We had a community engagement. So uh, people get it. And uh, sometimes what happens with misinformation is just there are facts that are spoken and they the a lot of garbage, as I call it, um, uh, sprinkled with a little bit of truth. <laughs> the truth stands out. So they use a word and people kind of gravitate to one word. They don't read the rest of the stuff. And that's the garbage just couched underneath. So we have to teach our people also to be able to discern um, and, and to have trusted resources. But also the trusted resources have to be trustworthy, right? And there has <laughs> right. to be consistency. It has to be rebuilt. It's damage has been done over 400 years. Yes. And now we're trying to do it within a year, two years, three years. <laughs> so again, we have to play that part. And um, yeah, a, a lot of those um, things have to be addressed. And we can go through them till we're blue in the face, but what are we doing about it? And how do we strategize um, and getting around it? So I can't believe how time is flying. We got at 12, it's 1243. Let's see what we have in the chat. We have any questions in the chat? And I'm uh, just uh, Laura, Lee, Laura Lee, let's go ahead and let's spotlight Laura Lee and bring her up here. And let's take on that chat. Uh, so Laura I'm going to give you some questions that have uh, appeared. And I think it'll probably um, also lead to further conversation. We have from Dr. Like. What is being done to document and address disparities in the care and outcomes of people, patients living with long COVID from diverse and marginalized populations? Would either of you like to comment on that? Uh, I'll just, just briefly and then throw it to Dr. Dan because in the clinical world, they're still trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> uh, I think the key is for people to recognize that COVID is not the flu. Maybe that was one of the biggest things when we're trying to find the right analogy. The flu doesn't mess up your, 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 your endocrine system. The flu doesn't give you chronic long-term symptoms. So that work is happening literally as we speak. And I'm hoping that people are, are talking to their healthcare professionals. And Dr. Dan, here's another opportunity for our people to participate in the kind of clinical trials that will help answer the very question uh, this participant has asked. What are you seeing on the medical side, Dr. Dan? 
No, I think you're totally right. I think defining um, what is long COVID is uh, elusive. Um, it's a constellation of symptoms, behaviors, um, and, and manifestations that are very subjective to the individual. Fancy word for saying we don't really know. Um, <laughs> so that's the medical jargon, right? That's what you want. Um, but we have to get a, a, around that. I, I think that they are studying, and I'm not saying that they're collecting data, but these things are usually rear-viewed retrospectively. We can get some clarity. So we are in the fight and we still have COVID going on. And then years later, and maybe five years, we have a good idea or some semblance of an idea. Oh, this is what it was causing. This is why we found out different things during different studies. Um, so I think the outcomes uh, data will be useful, but we can't make any decisions on any short-term things. I think it's going to be long-term. But one thing for sure, as you said, COVID is not the flu and COVID it has impacts on every single part of the body and everybody reacts a little bit different, but there are some long-term consequences to COVID. The clotting, we've had people just dying of heart attacks, clotting. I mean, I've seen people now, again, in the emergency department coming in with um, heart problems. They didn't get this vaccine. I've had people who got the vaccine who are also still coming in with heart problems. They just make it out safe. The other ones are not. So there are some things that we're seeing that we are learning and we're still learning as we go on and we have to stay humble. So uh, that's my roundabout way of saying we don't know. <laughs> well, you know what? That's important for the uh, medical professionals and those of us in public health to say what we don't know. Uh, last night, one of the, uh, the the wellness warriors showed a short clip of a video of one of her volunteers that ended up getting COVID severely, uh, ended up with a double lung transplant, Dr. Dan, oh, a double God. lung transplant, and had to learn to walk again. All this they showed last night, got out of the hospital, came back into the community, uh, but but did not make it. Um so, so we need those stories. I think that's the other thing. Nothing to be ashamed about. We need those stories and we need a venue, uh, uh, Laura Lee, where people can come and share those stories and that can help contribute as well. You know, we've got a lot of very thoughtful comments and questions. Um, uh, I, there's a couple of questions that have to do with community health workers. And, you know, what do we do to systematize, that's my word, these uh, individuals and implement it at a hyper-local level. And it, you know, it's all on soft money now and it's probably gonna dissolve, right? It's a trend, it's another fad. So what do we do to make this a sustainable kind part of health care and health equity and make and drive it to the hyper local level. Well, um, I'll, I'll start to talk with that. I think for community health uh, workers, um, there are different levels, right? Uh, so if we're talking about, for example, with barbers, stylists, and those becoming community health workers um, versus the true um, previously trained um, healthcare workers who actually work in the community. I think there are two two parts to that. The first thing is funding. It all comes down to money. People work, people will volunteer their time, but there's only a certain amount that you're gonna get out of them for that time. So there has to be some incentive. It may not necessarily always be money. It might be some other things. If they have access to maybe um, uh, uh, care, childcare, for example, and they can volunteer two hours a day or something like that. So we have to find some incentives around doing that. but. Bottom line, there's got, there's got to be money dedicated to it. It's a big problem that the country has to actually face. We have to invest in our communities. So at the state level, uh, hey, this is an appropriation of funds towards these community health workers who are doing stuff to keep our community safe and healthy. That has to be a priority. Uh, this is something that the church has actually pulled out to say, hey, or to the other faith-based organization, mosque or um, any uh, synagogue that have said, hey, this is what we're doing for our community and this is where we're putting funds. There are community people who will also invest in that for that. Um, so I think it's figuring out how to get that partnership, but there has to be some financial and other incentives to keep that sustainable. 
um, and they have to believe you, you have to be engaged and you have to provide some services that are beneficial. And most importantly, there has to be data and outcomes. How do we collect that information? And how do we actually reflect that information in terms of their healthcare outcomes? That's important. So Lord Lee, I, I, I think that if we do nothing in this moment that we have for fundamental change, it will be another fad. But this could be sustained and supported. Right now, there are community uh, colleges that have uh, training programs for uh, for community health workers. But again, it's a patchwork. We, I know about Maryland. I don't know what's happening in Arkansas uh, or Ohio. This is where at this level of the National Minority Quality Forum to look across the country, what are the standards uh, uh, and, and, and training the training qualifications to become a certified community health worker? What does it mean? And for our barbers and stylists, think about this, uh, Laura Lee, they're independent. They're, they're, they're certified by the state, but they're independent. They're not working in a hospital. So they're not in the reimbursement loop. We right. got to figure that out because community health workers can be spread across many uh, domains. You want them in the church. You want them in the grocery store. You want them in the barbershops and beauty salons. Uh, that's a reimagination of what a community health worker can be. They're not just hospital navigators. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should let the hospital system totally define what a community health worker is and does. The pandemic showed us they can do a lot of things outside of the hospital setting that can really make a difference and be partners with our clinical uh, providers. Totally agree. So there's a comment about basically how do you take that first step of engaging um, a trusted community health champion? That's what I call them. <laughs> I think they should come. I think they should come to our building trust training at the National Minority Quality Forum where Dr. Dan and I are core instructors and we bring our barbers and stylists in to let them literally see it in action. I would like to see us have a health equity bus tour uh, Laura Lee, we travel around the country to highlight uh, what worked. Don't you remember when we were doing flyovers and clapping at a certain time of day for the health workers? We got to get back to that. We got to get back to that to lift them up across the board. The program last night uh, for the uh, bar that the barbers and stylists put on, sponsored uh, by the National Minority Equality Forum, was a love letter to the clinical partners. Wow. And then we want to let them know we are ready for them. We need them. And that they come back to the neighborhood, they will be filled back up. Yes. It will help oh. heal them. <laughs> Definitely. No, I, I think love, love. You know, you're totally right. Um, several healthcare workers have said it. Um, they feel um, used, abused, and neglected. Unappreciated yes. is the word that I constantly hear. Yes. And, and that fosters the burnout and just the, I don't want to be involved in all this. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I think love and those types of events are important. So that would be great. Let's, it, let's definitely follow on that. I and have always said, believed that actually, that we need to, uh, you know, I know how busy our clinical teams are, but they are, if you engage them in something, a training an exercise an activity that aligns with what motivated them to begin with yes and inspires them or rekindles their energy it's amazing how that can really um i think go a long way towards helping uh you know the burnout and worse that we see in so many clinics i do have another question that was raised uh distinguishing between what covid disease versus covid vaccine evokes and i think that there's some vaccine hesitancy and misinformation buried in that question i wonder um how you would speak to that i mean so i was uh, highlight quickly um and uh full disclosure i see my batteries acting up so <laughs> if i disappear <laughs> It's not because I don't love y'all. Um, <laughs> so, just keeping it 100 with y'all. Um, with that said, uh, so COVID-19, the disease, um, uh, or SARS-CoV, the virus, um, if we want to distinguish all the things, 
COVID-19, the disease definitely caused clots, like maybe 20, I'm just giving random numbers here, but these are some of the quick facts. You're like more likely to have clots and die from the clots just from the disease versus the vaccine. So let's make sure that that's clear. That's what a lot of people don't understand. And because COVID-19 actually affects several different organs causing inflammation, just wreaking havoc through the whole system. It just basically resets everything and it makes everything just kind of go haywire. That's the best way I can I can um, describe it. The vaccine is meant to protect you, meant, meant to show you who the assailant is or the um, threat is so that you can mount a better immune response. There are some people who might have uh, a, a different kind of immune response, but that's few and far between. The big picture is you're more likely to have clots and long-term um, um, consequences that we're still learning as we go along that we're seeing in patients. Clots literally, and I'd say clots, that's like strokes, that's um, uh, uh, lung transplant, like, like um, Dr. T had mentioned, but it affects your kidneys, it affects your heart, it affects other symptoms, even bodies, muscles, your brain, this whole brain fog thing, some people are getting strokes. This is without the vaccine. There are some people who have had it with the vaccine, so I don't want to say that that's not clear, but the likelihood is 20 to 25 times more likely that you'll die of a clot. And if you're pregnant or in a state of pregnancy, which also puts you at risk in addition to having COVID-19 and not having been vaccinated, your clot chances rise up to 40 plus percent. So yeah. those are important things people need to be aware of. So we have to reiterate time and time again that the risk, that these vaccines are safe and effective. I think that's key. And be mindful that the misinformation campaigns are not going to stop. We have one of the most prominent purveyors of, of vaccine disinformation, uh, Robert Kennedy, who's actually now announced running for president. That's going to give him a big microphone to spread this. This is why we must stay in the community, right. in the barbershops and salons, and, and not let those places be marinating in that misinformation. How do we use the flat screen TVs in those shops? to deliver uh, content that they can trust. Uh, that's another silver lining of the pandemic. We have the same social media tools that the purveyors of misinformation have. How do we amplify and maximize our use of it to make sure our communities actually have what they need to keep their families safe? Well, we only have three minutes left. <laughs> I, just, uh, I entered in a email that I hope everyone on this call will join us so we can work on educating, give jump starts to some hyper-local activities, and join as advocates for solutions. Last thoughts. Maybe we better go with Dr. Dan first since he's the <laughs> um, I got I got 17%. I just checked the percentage. <laughs> um, my last thoughts are, look, we are human, okay? Uh, love one another. Um, try to reach out, be a part of the solution, engage your community, uh, tap in with NMQF um, so you can uh, get some of this information, go follow them. Um, uh, uh, and I say them, it's us, because I'm part of the family. Um, and the impact that the organization is having on the community is uh, sending reverberations through the community, but also the work of my fellow colleague, Dr. Thomas, and others and the, the 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 people in the background i think all of that needs to be valued um and the way you show us value is not monetarily it is by putting in your time um connecting attending some of the events and then finding what's going on in your community to be a part of that solution how can you become a health champion for your community for your local area and then advocacy if you have connects with government officials, governors, mayors in your city, state, and town, make sure you connect with them and share this information with them. And we can help you partner to help make solutions better for our brown and black communities who are the ones who are really having an impact. It's magnified in our communities. I want to make sure we emphasize that. I'm not apologetic about that. And with that, love you. <laughs> I'd say, you know, these barber poles are universal. You can go around the world and you'll see them, but every barbershop's not the same. Every salon's not the same. I think that, Laura Lee, let's acknowledge that these are uh, trusted information centers. They can be transformed into trusted information centers. We need to do that across the nation. 
Uh, no shame, no blame. Here's one of the things we heard from the people. Why did they hesitate to go to the to the doctor or to a clinic? They get blame. They get finger wagging. We didn't do that in the barbershop salons. Number one, it's a customer that's got to come back to get a haircut in two weeks. <laughs> and you don't want to have a messed up haircut. <laughs> no. So that attitude, that environment of no shame, no blame, they took the time to listen and they let people come to the reality in their own time with consistent information. Uh, here's another thing. We need more acts of kindness. You know, folk come into the shop, uh, a, a barbershop or salon, uh, feeling however they're feeling, because, you know, they may be a little down. But once they sit in that chair, when they get up and leave, they've got a smile on their face. We can use that to our advantage. And Dr. Dan, I'm not going to wait on the hospital systems. I say we reach out to Dr. Dan and your colleagues one-on-one, -on -one, would you be willing to be part of a registry so that we here at the National Minority Quality Forum can call on you and connect you to one of our uh, hair network shops in your area so that you're assured that when you go into that shop, those barbers and stylists have been trained. We can do that step-by-step, neighborhood-by-neighborhood, and, and, and really move the needle in a way that cannot be undone. That's what I want to see. We can do that. <laughs> and it's 101. There you go. I so can't with, believe it. <laughs> you know, with all our love, thank you, everyone, especially you, Dr. Dan, and you, Dr. T, and all those who've been helping to make this a great webinar, and all the participants. I have a great day, a great weekend. Stay in touch. Let's build this registry. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.